everyone, welcome to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and I thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you will like, subscribe, and make sure you share this show with someone who you think might hear to hear, need to hear today's topic. Um, I believe definitely that this is a subject that a lot of people don't like to talk about, but it's definitely one that needs to be discussed, and that is estate planning. We have a very special guest with us today who's going to impart some wisdom on the subject of wills, trusts, living wills, guardianship, probate, and power of attorney. I welcome attorney Sandy Boisron to the show. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I definitely appreciate the opportunity. Yes, and I, I also want to give our guests a little bit of your background and your personal story. I want you to know Sandy is not only a licensed attorney, she's also an advocate who was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and raised in Miami, Florida, here in the U.S. She was born to Haitian parents and speaks fluent Haitian Creole. She is also the proud auntie of an autistic child and serves as an advocate in both of those communities. She's the co-founder of Spectrum Law Firm in Miami, Florida, and is also the co-host of the Learn Biz podcast that highlights the experiences of Black entrepreneurs. Sandy, again, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful that you are joining us today to share with us information on this very, very important topic. And so um, before we begin, I want to make sure that our guests know that later in the show, we are going to offer a call-in number where you can you can call in and um, ask questions if you'd like. So uh, we'll get to that in just a moment, but I do plan to cover a lot of ground during today's program. And so I hope our listeners are wise enough to take out a pen and paper to write down a few notes as you enlighten us on the importance of estate planning. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is whether everyone actually needs a will. So, you know, that's an interesting question because, you know, many times people don't really understand what estate planning actually is. Estate planning is not about the documents. It's actually about the core word plan. What is your plan in the event of, and we can fill in the blank with a ton of different things. A will is definitely a great tool because it allows you to leave your final instructions whatever it is that your intention is with your possessions, what you want to leave for specific family members, um, what your intentions are in terms of distributions from your estate, you can identify those things in a will. When you don't leave a will, what you do is you allow the state to be the decision maker as to how your estate is distributed. So yes, a will is not necessarily required for every single person, but if you don't have a will, you put yourself at a great risk for others to be making decisions about what your intentions would have been. Sandy, what about those people who say, you know, hey, I can't afford a will. You know, it, 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 it's just too much. What would you say to those people? I would say that if you want your family to be spending probably two to four times more than they would have had to spend if you had your affairs in order. Sure, you can ignore this idea and say it's too expensive. Uh, I'll give you an idea of, you know, we do all kinds of things throughout the year. We make plans for trips. We go to these concerts. We have all kinds of things that we make plans for. Why can't we make plans for peace of mind? 
to make right. sure that our family, yeah, why can't yeah. we make plans for that just like anything else? Yeah, one of the most important things ever, right? Um, Absolutely. So, um, you know, on average, could you enlighten us on how much it might cost um, to put a, a, a will together? I know it may be different for different um, parts of the country, but say in Miami, there where you are, which is an expensive place to live, you know, what can someone maybe expect to, to spend, uh, you know, there? So estate planning, yes, it is very um, state specific and it's also region specific. So if you're in South Florida, you might expect to spend numbers that you might not spend in Central or Northern Florida. I would say generally speaking for wills or will packages, you might spend a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars. It just depends on what assets you have and what your intentions are with those assets. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people kind of get terms confused. There are a lot of legal terms, especially when you're in a crisis. Someone has passed away, usually is when you're going to be dealing with a will. And so it's a lot of stress, a lot of turmoil. But a lot of people um, don't even know a lot of the jargon, that legal jargon, if you will, that is thrown at them. So I want to start with some basic uh, terminology. And some of my questions might be pretty basic, but I think it's information that, um, you know, can be generic enough for, you know, a broader audience. And so um, I want to ask you to start by defining the difference between a will and a living will. So the key thing to understand is a will is what really we call a last will and testament. It is your last wishes. It is what it is you want to happen to everything that you own, including your personal effects, as well as what you want to be left for your family. So that's what a will is, your last will and testament. It's where you put your last wishes. When it comes to a living will, keep in mind the word living. It's a living document. And it's basically for you to identify what you want to happen if you become unable to make any decisions for yourself. So we're talking about folks who are in end stage conditions, um, persistent vegetative state, just in a position where the doctors have determined the only way that you can remain living or alive is by artificial means, like a ventilator, for example. So if you don't want to be on a ventilator and you don't want people to resuscitate you in the event that you have some kind of crisis and a ventilator is the only option, that is when you would put in a living will. It's a living document. It affects a healthcare decision. Mm -hmm. So um, another question that I had um, was, can a handwritten will be effective? Because some people might say, well, I've already written down my wishes. Um, you know, I think I have my, uh, my estate is in order. What do you say to those people? <laughs> So I would say that every single state has specific requirements that a will must satisfy to be effective and valid. So you have to make sure that within your state that you satisfy those things. It could be the requirements of certain amounts of witnesses. You know, it might be two or three witnesses. It could be maybe there's a requirement for notarization. So you have to be mindful of what state you're in in terms of the requirements that are there, because yes, you could potentially write your own will, but you may be missing some terms and conditions. You may not have the necessary information that allows someone to have a document that would be valid before a court. Okay, very good. Uh, because, you know, it's just basic information, but 
sometimes people get the two mixed up or they're not even realizing there's a difference between a will and a living will because often you'll go to the hospital it's like do you have a living will do you have a will you know (laughs) they're asking you questions so um it's good to to clarify that i want to take a quick commercial break and when we come back um we're gonna get into a few other uh areas of of uh expertise that you have and we'll um definitely uh, delve into those subjects. We'll be back right after this. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. All right, and we're back, and uh, we're talking about estate planning today, and I am so glad to have the presence of Sandy Boisrant, who is with us, who is a licensed attorney, who is talking to us about uh, her subject of expertise here. And so one thing I wanted to um, also get into is probate court, which you mentioned a moment ago. So when things are not handled properly, Um, and they often end up in probate court. Uh, Can you explain kind of what that process is like for many families and why you probably don't want to end up there? So one of the keys to understanding probate court is the fact that whatever intentions that you had may not really be realized in the probate court process. So when your family is going through this process, they can expect that you know, anything that they had in mind about what they were going to receive may look very different on the other end. The first thing is understanding that you're going to need an attorney if you're going to do a formal probate process. And even if you're doing what's called a summary probate and, you know, you only have maybe a piece of property or maybe a bank account, sometimes it's difficult for individuals to understand the court process because they've never had to deal with certain aspects. So it's sometimes wise to have an attorney, but keep that in mind when the monies are to come from the estate, you're decreasing the amount that you're going to receive because you have an attorney, but you're also um, may not even receive everything because there may be creditors that come into play. And I've had many times people come to me and say, well, I thought, you know, creditors claims die, you know, when the person dies. And I'm like, no, that's not correct. Um, They, they very well may end up paying those credit card bills. They, they, they of course are going to end up paying things like a mortgage, Um, Tax debt sometimes has to be paid. Um, If you have any contractor's liens or um, any kind of mechanical liens on the property, child support, alimony, uh, many of those things will have to come out first. And then we're not even talking about attorney's fees that are going to come off top. The personal representative can be compensated for their time and reimbursements. Because when someone passes away, we know that we have funeral expense, you know, the last clearing out of their homes and any expenses to do all of those final affairs. All of those things may come off the top before we even get to distributing to the family. So oftentimes I'll find think, hey, you know, there's 50,000 or 20,000. Not really. It might be 10. It might even be five. Um, So I think the probate court process is just difficult for people to process in their minds And there are a lot of little steps. So for example, you have to um, get a set of documents prepared that need to be submitted to the court. 
the court is going to need a certified copy of the death certificate. If there's a will, the court actually needs the original will. And if you don't have the original and just a copy, there are steps that have to be accomplished to prove to the court that that will is still valid. And many times people will have a will that was only signed, but not notarized, like it's not proving that the, the document exists. So there are extra steps for that as well. So in essence, something that may sound simple could take months to even years to go through. And a lot of it is the court paperwork, the court process, and dealing with the heirs or the beneficiaries of the estate. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking about that, um, I'd like to segue into what types of things should one actually think about putting into a will when, you know, you're sitting down with your family or what have you, and you're, you're really trying to put together something, or you may just be on your own uh, with an attorney. What, what types of things should be considered in preparing that document? So the main um, components when it comes to a will is identifying who your family is. And that's an area that I've found um, sometimes there are some question marks because mm. um, let's say someone passes away and they had a family before their current family. Um, we may be trying to figure out if somebody is legitimately a child. Um, adopted children count, but children who are allegedly adopted and there's no legal paperwork, that could create a question mark. Um, and even if somebody has acknowledged a child their whole life, um, it could be that family members contest it, and we don't know what the result of that would be. But identifying who the family is is the first phase. Um, the second phase is identifying your intentions. If you want to be buried or if you want to be cremated, if you have prepaid burial arrangements already in place, all of those details are extra helpful. If you have specific gifts that you want to identify, uh, most of the time in a will, it will give kind of a blanket provision for all personal effects. You know, if you have jewelry or vehicles or boats, um, paintings, any of the household items that you own, you know, generally it'll have a kind of blanket statement and you can list that as going to someone. But you also can specifically list things like, you know, pieces of jewelry, if you have specific artwork, um, if you have furniture or vehicles or, or certain items that you specifically want to go to specific people, you can make those intentions known. The other thing that a will really looks to is who are the people that will receive the distributions of whatever there is, right? Um, so if there's money, for example, how is that money going to be broken down and who's going to receive? And please keep in mind that just because someone is drafting a will doesn't necessarily mean that they have to leave anything to their family or their children or their spouse. They can choose to leave to whoever they want, like a charity or an organization. Um, so those distributions will be outlined in the will. All in all, the big part of a will is making sure that all of those categories have information as well as contingency issues, right? So what happens if all of the people I have listed pass away? Where do I want my assets to go? I have to identify that in the will. And then what happens if everybody that I have listed, if all the residual people I have listed have passed away, how do I want that to be split? To my heirs? Do I want it to go to a charity? Do I have, you know, maybe an organization that I was running or something like that? So um, the will gives you a lot of room to break down all of the things that you want to happen. But the one thing that you have to know is that a will does not transfer interest in property. It does not transfer interest in financial accounts. And it doesn't actually do a transfer of anything. 
you have to go through the court process if the will mentions anything about things like real estate or financial accounts. Um, and that's kind of a little thing that I see a lot. People like, I have the will so I can go to the bank. You can't go mm-hmm. to the bank. The bank is going to ask you, do you have any paperwork that identifies you as someone authorized to come and receive these funds? Mm-hmm. So that brings me to orchestration of the will. Usually um, I've heard things like there's an executor or somebody has to have a power of attorney and things like that. Can you talk about the setup of people uh, that you may name to do certain things and what their role should be in terms of how that will is orchestrated and carried out. Absolutely. So, you know, you have the individual that is creating the will, um, you know, and they are generally called the testator or the, if it's a female, the testatrix. Um, If you're in different states, sometimes the language may be a little bit different. Um, Then you have the individual that will handle the financial affairs. They're like the designated representative. Here in Florida, that's called a personal representative. In some states, it may be called an executor or an administrator. But this is the person who is responsible for getting all of the assets together that the deceased person had, identifying who the beneficiaries are or who the heirs are if there's no will, identifying if there are any creditors that will file claim against the estate or even just existing creditors that may need to be paid, and also identifying if there are any loose ends that need to be addressed. Homestead real estate, if you're in Florida, Um, if you have a mortgage foreclosure, a reverse mortgage, liens on the property, any major outstanding debts, any business interests, if there's life insurance, um, investment accounts, 401k, pension, cryptocurrency, any digital Mm. assets out there, you know, if you have a YouTube channel or, you know, any of these things, that personal representative has basically a long checklist of things that they have to check out, including making sure to secure the, you know, personal items and effects of the person who passed away, you know, identification, their home, um, any business, you know, entities and things of that sort. So they have a long list of things that they have to do. So that's called the personal representative or um, executor or administrator. Mm -hmm. Um, The individuals who are named in a will, we call them the beneficiaries. If there is no will, the personal representative is instead working with heirs to the estate. Mm -hmm. So those are the the key definitions that we would know in this situation. Mm -hmm. I know, um, you know, you mentioned uh, online presence and having those types of things that we never really had to think about years ago. Now there are all these um, additional things that a will may have been written 20 years ago, you know. So right. how often should people be looking at a will to make these changes? At what point? Because it is costly. But when you every time you go make a change, you know, it's costly to put it in place and then you know, 20 years later, okay, uh, you know, I think some things have changed here. So um, how often, you know, should should families kind of get together and say, hey, might be a good idea if we talked about this right now? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's helpful to look at your will like you look at other aspects of your life. You know, if I have life insurance, I need to keep my beneficiaries updated. If I have a pension or a 401k, I need to update. If I have a financial account, somebody passes away, You know, I need to make sure that I double check I have a payable on death or terminable on death. Same with the will. As things change in your life, as uh, circumstances, you know, grow, you need to make sure that your will grows accordingly. So if I have listed, you know, my siblings 
as uh, the beneficiaries of my estate and one of my siblings passes away and I don't have provision in my will that says, well, if that sibling passes away, then it's going to go to their children or to their spouse, then I have to make sure that I make a change to my documents. But it's also important to know that at the time that you create your documents, there should be some, some positioning in each section of your document that addresses, well, what happens if? If one of these people passes away, what do I want to happen? Um, and, and that should be in anything that we do. Even when we do beneficiary designations on accounts, we have to have a contingent beneficiary just in case that person passes. Um, so it's always updating, changing. Um, I would say check your documents when things change or maybe check them once a year you know, around tax time or, or the time that we spend time going through our affairs. That's a good time. Mm-hmm. And earlier you mentioned uh, something about a homestead estate or something like that. Right. Can you explain what that is uh, for people who might not know what that is? So here in Florida, we have homestead protection for the primary home or the primary residence. Um, and basically it allows you to have protection of your primary property um, and allows you to secure that for your family. So in the event, for example, we have a husband and wife that pass, you know, one of them passes away, you know, there are, are already provisions with those deeds that address husband and wife relationship, right? So if husband passes, it stays for the wife, if wife passes and vice versa. But, you know, if you have a piece of property and let's say you have children, and you know your spouse passes away and now you're the only person well what a homestead protection will do is it will go down you know the bloodline so your children will benefit from the protections that you had with that homestead and we're talking about creditor protections mostly and keep in mind that doesn't mean something like a mortgage you know the mortgage uses the property as security so therefore you're not going to protect yourself from paying the mortgage but you yeah. could protect yourself from that discover card or the capital one and, and those types of debts because you know, those um, entities um, are not going to really be able to have force you to sell your primary home. Now, if you have that investment property in the homestead, homestead may be protected, not that investment property. So you may be forced yeah. into a situation there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are all really, really interesting caveats of, of the estate planning process. <laughs> and just, you know, it's so much stuff going on, you know, that uh, it, it is good to, um, you know, certainly look at, um, you know, look at uh, your will and, and such every so often to make sure that, you know, there aren't major changes like someone that you've named as an executor right. or a beneficiary may have past and and that's not covered. Okay. So we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about when families may have uh, dissension uh, because they haven't taken care of business and how all that can be avoided. So we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you. When it comes to relationships, there are some obvious signs you can use to spot someone who might be abusive. First, they have a tendency to want to rush into a relationship. They may also show signs of jealousy and mistrust, and you could find they expect you to be perfect and will try to cut you off from other important relationships. They could also be abusive towards animals and children. To learn more about the signs of dangerous individuals and how you can identify and avoid unhealthy relationships, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. Hi, and welcome back. You're listening to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein. And today we are talking about estate planning and 
um, getting into some really interesting subject matter. So I hope uh, if you're just joining us, you probably want to grab a pen and paper because there are a lot of important things that we're discussing today. Um, if you want to talk about um, leaving a legacy to your family or, you know, just making sure that you pass on uh, what you have if uh, in the event something should happen. So just making sure things are, are situated because when they're not, Sandy, as you know, I'm sure as an attorney dealing with this, there may be a lot of arguments that take place within families and a lot of dissension in figuring out how mom or dad's wishes uh, were to be carried out, you know, when things aren't in place. So um, when there is not a will, um, right now, what would you say to those families that really don't have it together? Because I think COVID, if it's taught us anything, uh, it's that you kind of need to get things in order because I have learned of more people passing in these last two to three years than ever before, you know, in my lifetime. So uh, what would you say right now to those families? I I would say that the biggest thing that having your affairs in order can do is give you a sense of peace of mind. Um, and, And it's not specifically about the will itself, It's about the power that the will gives to the person who passed away because they get to speak their intentions beyond the grave. But if you don't have their intentions, and I give this example all the time, my aunt passed away a couple months ago. I was like her representative in terms of handling her affairs. She did not have a will, but somehow she managed to have some planning in place, right? So she had life insurance. She made sure that she had beneficiaries as well as contingents. So that was taken care of and it handled her funeral. Um, She had a bank account. She made sure to put one of her sisters on there. That made sure that certain bases were covered. So in her instance, not having a will was not detrimental in our case. But the problem was all of her stuff. She had a lot of stuff, a lot of personal effects and clothing. Um, I didn't know what to do with those things. And it would have been helpful to know, you know, maybe if she wanted her things to go to charity or if she had, you know, some friends or family um, that she specifically wanted to leave certain items to. So unfortunately, in that regard, I lost the opportunity to have some peace of mind and knowing what was done with her personal effects was what she wanted. Now, we gave a lot of things to charity. So, you know, my aunt's things will live on. Right. But, you know, I can't help but think, did I satisfy what she would have wanted? And there's no way for me to know. So that's the biggest thing that a will provides. But the other thing is, When we're going through the probate process and you have five or six people involved and you have no will, oh my gosh, it's it's like a breeding ground for conflict. And there's always one or two people that will say, well, mom wouldn't have wanted that or dad wouldn't have wanted that. And I have to repeat this word, you know, these words like a broken record. Unfortunately, they didn't leave a will. So we don't know what they would have wanted. Even if they took a video before they passed or they wrote a little note to you, that's not a will. Right. So you have to um, please start thinking about whether or not you want your words to stand or whether or not you want others to make decisions for yourself. Mm -hmm. What uh, happens when people can't agree to disagree and it just gets really ugly? I mean, what are some steps that uh, you've seen people have to take in those instances? Um, I actually have a, a couple of situations going on right now. And what really happens is this. Um, the attorney 
or attorneys, because sometimes we end up having multiple attorneys involved in one case because people can't agree. And, you know, ultimately, if there is a pot, let's say the pot has, let's just give a small number. Let's say the pot has $10,000 and you have attorney A, you have attorney B, and you also have debts. Do you really think that people are going to get much if there's conflict? Because now attorney A is going to charge more. Attorney B is going to charge more. And if there are any outstanding debts and they're not paid, you know, you're, you're kind of guaranteeing that certain things are going to happen in terms of increasing in fees and things of that sort. So I think the, the worst thing about conflict is people don't realize how it depletes the pot. And I've seen scenarios where let's say there was like $300,000, you know, when you calculate the property and the, you know, money's in the bank and investments. Well, the moment that you start bringing in attorneys, keep in mind here in Florida and some other jurisdictions, the attorney may get 3% plus other fees, plus the personal representative can get 3%, depending on the amount of the estate. Plus you're now paying creditors debts. You may have other expenses of the administration that have to be paid. And if someone else brings an attorney to the table, there's a possibility that that attorney is also getting paid. So Mm -hmm. all that really does is deplete what could have been left for more wealth for the family. But people don't really think about that because mostly they get wrapped up in their emotions and they feel this sense of, you know, the court is going to make it better. And I'm like, no, the judges actually don't want to hear this conflict. They want people to come to resolve. Um, And when you bring that conflict to the court, ultimately, the judge is going to make the only decision that they can make because there is no will. So, you know, that's where the challenge is. You don't want other people making the decision because the judges will often say, if it comes to me, both of you are going to be unhappy or, or whatever numbers of people. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, that just goes to show that maybe people should kind of try to sit down at the table when they yes. can and have a good idea of what really is going on. Because sometimes, you know, families get split and some people are living out of state or what have you. And you, you might not really know what's what's actually taking place. So um, it's important, I think, at, at some point in time to before it gets too far, you know, to, to go ahead and sit down and try to resolve some of the issues that you may have with uh, family and or, or siblings or what have you. So um, one of the things I think I wanted to ask you about, I know that's in your wheelhouse is also guardianship. So explain what that is in terms of the, the legal system when a guardian might be appointed or needed, you know, you know, what circumstances might arise where that could come up. So a guardianship process actually comes into effect when there is a concern that someone is unable to handle their medical needs and their financial needs um, or individually one one or the other. Um, The purpose of guardianship is to make sure that there is somebody appointed to serve as the guardian of that person to make sure that they handle all of those needs. Now, there are different types of situations where guardianship comes to play. The one that I would say people would think of most common is when we're dealing with aging adults. As our parents age or as our you know, other family members age, you know, there are things that come into play like dementia and Alzheimer's or just general memory loss. Um, and sometimes an extra need to be assisted by others, but sometimes people manipulate that need, right? 
And so you may have situations where you have um, a younger family member taking advantage of a situation, where you have strangers taking advantage of the situation. So if Mm -hmm. that aging person does not have a durable power of attorney, if they don't have a living will and healthcare designation, guardianship would be needed to fill those gaps, right? In the medical and the financial. Now, even when you have those documents in place, sometimes a guardianship still has to come into play because if you are, if, if something is deficient in one of these documents, like it's not covered, um, and let's say it's something important, someone might have to go to the court and seek a guardianship for a limited purpose, you know, to handle specific things. Um, the other circumstance where you'll see guardianship a lot, and, and because the special needs population, based on what I'm seeing, is growing, um, is with just general special needs. And, and I almost like to focus on autism because one in 44 children right now is diagnosed with autism. So you have children aging out, right, of you know being able to be covered by their parents. And once they turn 18, the government looks at them as an adult. So you need a guardianship for a parent or family member to continue to handle their affairs because they're not going to be able to do it themselves, but you may come across situations where the folks will not listen to you, even though you've been their long-term caregiver. And then the last circumstance that I'm starting to see more frequently also is the guardianship of the property of a minor. And many times you have a minor who is inheriting money from maybe a a parent um, or inheriting money from someone else or from a settlement or from a lawsuit. And so if they're receiving amounts that are above whatever the state's threshold is, the natural guardian or the parent will not be able to receive those funds on their child's behalf. And so what happens is you end up having to have a guardianship put into play so that that minor child's funds can be preserved until they turn 18. Um, so, you know, it's, it's three major categories, I would say, where you're going to often see a need for guardianship. Yeah, and I, I think uh, we may have seen that in the case of some celebrities where yes. uh, the court had to step in and try to make sure that the child was protected because they were making money, but the parents were spending all the child's money. So, yeah, those are, are unique circumstances, but, you know, day to day. And I guess uh, another question as it relates to guardianship um, does the court, I mean, do you ha- actually have to have an attorney to approach the court about getting a guardian or, or basically how does that work, that part of it, in terms of, let's say, you think that's needed? So there's two phases to guardianship. And again, I'm, I can only speak about Florida. You know, some states might do this a little slightly different, but there's two phases. So there's the incapacity piece and then there's the actual guardianship piece. Under the incapacity piece, there has to be a determination that this person is not able to handle their affairs on their own. Um, So they label um, the individual an alleged incapacitated person and basically a family member or a friend or somebody, you know, maybe who is close to this person um, will petition the court. Now, I don't remember if they necessarily need a guardian, uh, an attorney for that particular phase. I'm just so used to doing both. But um, I think that you may be able to petition the court and make that determination. But then as far as the guardianship is concerned, there is an attorney required. Um, There's paperwork and and screenings in terms of uh, criminal background and credit reports that needs to be done. And there's just much more paperwork on the guardianship side, whereas the incapacity, it's really mainly the petition. And then there's other people that the court appoints to do their evaluations to see if that person is in fact incapacitated, either totally or partially. Um, But you don't necessarily have to have an attorney for both parts unless your jurisdiction has those specific rules. 
um, but also knowing that guardianship is long term. So as an attorney, I'm the attorney on the file until until they're either removed from the guardianship, like they're restored to their capacity or until they pass away. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that something that's rare or do you find that that happens more often than people would think? I feel like I see it happen more often than people would think. And part of the reason is because I want you to think about the family member that you may have that's kind of on their own. They do their own thing. They don't mess with anybody in the family, really. Um, Or they just have their own ways. um, And no one can really tell them anything. They want to do their own thing at all times. I want you to picture when this person gets to an age where they can't care for themselves. And think about whether or not this person would want people in their business. Um, Example, my aunt didn't want people in her business. But when it came down to it, guess what? We had to be in all of her business. Because there weren't, you know, certain things in place. So unfortunately, guardianship is going to be because we're living much longer. um, It's going to be much more of a prevalent problem as as we get into these, uh, you know, next few years, I would say, because I am seeing folks live for, you know, very 90s. I I have a guardianship client right now. The the parent is, I mean, they're in their 90s. And they don't look like they're going anywhere anytime soon. So, (laughs) yeah, so... Good to hear. <laughs> One thing um, I wanted to, to ask too. So in the case of the aging community, um, you know, what do you do if someone has actually lost their faculties and um, there's someone around them who's going in and making decisions for them and maybe doesn't have the authority to do so um, because they don't have, say, a power of attorney? I mean, what happens in cases like that? So what I've um, typically seen, and, you know, I hate to say some of these things because these are not the avenues that we really want, Um, but if it's severe enough and there's enough of a concern, sometimes people have to reach out to their local elder abuse hotline, um, which covers, you know, abuse and exploitation and neglect. And, um, you know, if, if it gets to the point where you don't have any other way then you would try that avenue because at least an investigation can be done. And then, you know, they can seek out the support of the family, maybe to go forward with guardianship or or other avenues. Um, Other than that, you know, guardianship is typically put in place for that type of need. You know, if you are concerned um, that there's something going on with your loved one, then you may have to seek out the intervention of the court because here's something that people don't understand about powers of attorney. The power can be given And it also can be changed at any time. So you have someone who is an aging adult and they have a power of attorney. You know, today I can go out with my power of attorney and make all kinds of changes. Tomorrow I can make a change to my power of attorney and appoint somebody else and go somewhere else and make all kinds of changes, right? So, you know, you may want someone to have a power of attorney so they can control, you know, so you can help them control bank accounts and things like that. Um, But I did have a situation about two years ago, I think it was during COVID, where one day the person went with their, uh, I think it was like their son to the bank, changed some stuff and did what they did. Next day, they went to the bank with their daughter, changed (laughs) the stuff again. Day after that, and it wasn't like back to back, but it it was basically Mm. that situation. You know, they kept Mm. going back and forth And here's the thing, you know, if you go to the bank and you tell the bank rep that you can speak to this person, they're not worried about a power of attorney. They're listening to what you're telling them at the time. Mm -hmm. And so it can be really problematic. 
And this is also a reason why, you know, doing power of attorney for, um, you know, adults with special needs can be question markish, right? Concerning because if you have an adult child who has special needs and is unable to really clearly make certain decisions for themselves, and you enter into a power of attorney because you think, you know, they're functional at a high level, you know, a lot of people use those terms. Um, what you don't realize is they can terminate that power of attorney at any time. That's why it's important sometimes guardianship can be a really good tool for parents because it allows that control through the court. And so that can't be terminated just by a click, right? You have to go through some steps before you can terminate that type of relationship. Um, But they also have here in Florida what's called um, guardian advocacy. Um, It doesn't require an attorney. And if the child has certain developmental disabilities that are on the state's list, you know, autism as an example, um, then the child can still be a bit independent, but have the support of that parent when need be. Yeah. I mean, uh, those are some areas you wouldn't even think about, but people have, you know, children that have special needs or, you know, adults with special needs in some cases. And so uh, there are lots of things that uh, I guess families need to think about um, that probably, you know, many people just aren't until it's a crisis. And so hopefully, you know, us talking about this today can avoid some of that and having it be at at that point. Um, So I'm going to take another quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to ask a couple of final questions here on, um, you know, just what we can do to plan better plan for the future. We'll be back right after this. Domestic violence between intimate partners is expected to rise by 20% during and coming out of the quarantine shutdown. There are steps you can take to protect yourself. Don't wait for an abuser to hurt you. Call the police if you feel threatened. If your abuser begins to stalk you, it might be time for an order of protection. Once you get it, carry it with you and show it to police if you must call them. For more information, call the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. All right, welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and we're talking about estate planning today. Um, great topic here, hearing some wonderful in- information here from uh, Sandy Boisron. And I want to say, Sandy, um, I want to talk about next trusts. Tell me about uh, what a trust is and, and who might need one. So, a trust is an agreement that you can set up where you will identify someone to serve as your trustee. And oftentimes, if you're creating the trust, you might be the initial trustee. Um, But you'll identify someone who is going to basically manage your property, either during your lifetime or after you pass away. The beauty of a trust is it's, it's much like a contract. So you are setting up some terms and conditions. You're giving the trustee certain levels of powers. Um, You're identifying how you want distributions to be made. And many times people will use trusts for some sort of generational um, wealth protection, um, for some sort of legacy building, because it allows you to distribute funds over time. I mean, you can set up something like a budget for those that you want to distribute funds to. Um, It allows you to maintain interests in real estate. Um, You could serve Your trust through your trustee can serve as a beneficiary to life insurance. Um, You can also have 
you know, financial accounts retitled so that they can um, maintain funds for the trust. Um, so it's a really, really great tool. Uh, the catch is, you know, it's not really a tool for everybody. You know, it's, it's about what your intentions are. And most of the time we recommend things like trust for folks who have minor children, um, children with special needs, uh, maybe aging parents who they want to provide for or other adult children that they want to provide for long-term. Um, and we all know, you know, if, if we have folks in our family that have certain needs um, and we want to make sure that they have a home to stay in long-term or they have money that's coming to them maybe on a monthly or yearly basis um, to provide for needs. Um, the beauty of a trust as well is it provides um, for certain special needs planning um, because you can preserve funds in a trust um, through special needs or supplemental needs trust provisions that allows you to you know, allows your child to maintain certain benefits while at the same time benefiting from the funds of the trust for special treatments, for travel, for other, you know, respite care and, and specialized medical care. Um, so it gives you a lot of flexibility. And ultimately, it's a device that allows you to do some protection of your assets, not protection from everything now, right? You know, we can't protect from the IRS and from oh, yeah. existing it's, debts. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's not it's not bulletproof, even though people <laughs> think it is. It really isn't. Yes. Um, but it's a great tool. Um, one thing I didn't hear you mention in all of that are uh, revocable trust and irrevocable trust. Can you explain uh, the difference between the two? Absolutely. So generally speaking, most of us in our lifetime, if we create a trust, it's going to be a revocable living trust. And when we pass away, that trust will become irrevocable, unless there's some other language that will say otherwise. When it comes to irrevocable trusts, there are a lot of different types. The issue comes down to when you create an irrevocable trust, you are no longer the controller of those funds. Um, so times when I've seen people do those types of trusts is when they do things like life insurance trusts and things where they want to designate money for somebody and they're not going to be involved and they will have no ability to change that circumstance. So that's not something that I particularly deal with because there are some tax consequences to that. Um, so if you are trying to do some type of irrevocable trust, you want to go to somebody who specializes in dealing with those types of tax sorry, those types of uh, estate planning strategies, but also be mindful that you are subject to certain types of tax situations in that case. When it comes to a revocable living trust or what sometimes we call a living trust, um, it is your typical document that most of us will deal with, um, but know that there are different types of trusts. So you may have a pet trust or a gun trust or a family trust. You may have a charitable living trust or a marital trust. Um, there are a lot of different types of devices, and sometimes people combine certain provisions and documents um, to serve multiple purposes, but um, for every situation, there may be some nuance to their trust. Mm -hmm. Are there any things that you would say should probably never go in a trust, or could everything you know, go in a trust? I, I don't like to say never because, you know, there are situations that apply to different circumstances. What I would say is I, I don't think that everything has to go to the trust. Um, and, I, and I don't like when I hear, you know, a lot of times on social media, I hear people just put everything in the trust. Well, right. here's the thing. Um, you know, the trust is somewhat of an entity in and of itself, right? So it's a contract. It has a trustee. It manages interests. And if you say you tra transfer everything to the trust, well, what happens when there's some liability issues that pop up? You're going to now subject your, tr your trust to potential litigation. 
And one thing that is a reason that we create the trust is to avoid going through court processes. So as an example, if I own a bunch of real estate and I put all of those interests into the trust and there's no other entity or, or establishment to protect um, those interests, you may potentially subject your trust to be going through lawsuits. And so you don't want to be in that position unless you've covered all of your bases. And that's where, you know, comprehensive estate planning is definitely required, especially if you have a lot of assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as time goes, you know, how, how much time are you spending with people to actually engage in the estate planning process? I know some may be more complex than others, but on average, the person that has, you know, a few things here and there, right. you know, how much time are you spending with the average family? So I would say, generally speaking, um, there's at least a handful of hours, anywhere from about five to 10 hours, if not more. Um, And part of the reason is because when we do an initial consultation, that is for me to get a big picture understanding of everything that you own, all of the members of your family, all of the liabilities and um, assets that you have, um, and what your intentions are. And then once I've taken a look at that, then I can say, okay, well, these are the best things that we can do in your circumstances. But then once that is done, now we have to do some documentation. Um, and sometimes it takes some time for us to kind of get through all of these phases and get addresses and phone numbers for certain people. Um, the other thing is we have to take some time to go through the documents together. So it's not just sending documents to the family for review. Um, you know, we actually have another meetup, much like the consultation, um, to go over the terms and conditions of the document and make sure that it reflects what they wanted. And last but not least, there is the signing ceremony, which has to be done in certain in a certain manner to make sure that we cover all the bases, right? We have to have all the signatures that we need in the right positions, initials in the right spots, the notary has to be situated, we have to have two witnesses. Um, And there's a lot of signing going on, Um, but all in all, making sure that we don't miss anything because for the most part, we're not going to realize that mistake until you've passed away. Um, And that's not a time where we want to go through extra court process Mm -hmm. to determine what your intention was about whatever it is. Right. Now, with that being said, you know, a lot of people, obviously, you're like uh, saying it could take me five to 10 hours to go through all this. And so a lot of people may put that estate planning off because they're thinking, I'm really busy. I don't have time for this. But what right. do you say to those people who are saying, I'll get to it, you know? So I will say that, you know, it's about you because understand, um, you know, for an attorney like me, I don't have one way to do things, right? So I, I definitely am what I would call a virtual attorney. Um, so ever since before COVID, I was pretty much half and half, but now I'm fully virtual. So I meet with my clients just like, you know, we're meeting right now and, um, you know, we can discuss what we need to discuss. Then anything else, I mean, we may not even need to meet, you know, it might be just, you know, send me what I need. Um, You know, I use things like text messaging, I use email, um, I use video conferencing and things like that for when we need to address certain things. So you have a variety of ways to send me the information. And also what I have noticed sometimes, especially when it's like a husband and wife, um, or, you know, it might be a mother and son or mother and daughter, um, they will designate somebody to handle, you know, the in-between time. So it's not necessary that I have to deal with you one-on-one aside from, of course, the main meeting that we have, as well as the signing at the end. Um, so I try to make it as uh, painless as possible, but I still get a lot of folks that are like, ah, oh, you know, I don't have time to do these things, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I want you to think of the time that you're going to save for your family at the end of the day, if you at least 
organize your affairs. I'm not saying you have to have estate planning documents. In fact, I'm saying that there's a lot of options for each and every one of us to do. Mm -hmm. That's great. Great advice to everyone. I wanted to end here by asking if you have any final parting thoughts of, you know, or summation of, of today's discussion. I'm going to give you one of my favorite phrases. Our lives are not filling the blanks. So in preparing for your final affairs, in preparing for your um, emergency situations, we have to keep in mind that the documents that we decide to put in place have to be prepared according to our circumstances. So there's not really a one size fits all. The other thing is there are so many resources at our fingertips now. You have no excuse to not at least have a few things in place. So I'll leave you with this. You need to double check your beneficiary designations and every and any account that you have that allows you to designate somebody, whether a beneficiary or a legacy or or whatever the name of it is, you need to check all of your accounts and verify that you have someone listed to basically handle your affairs. Um, Also consider the fact that you should not leave children as beneficiaries of life insurance, especially young children. So consider Mm -hmm. some of the options that you may have. Um, And last but not least, please don't forget your digital assets. Many of us have YouTube channels. We have social media accounts. We have online accounts for everything under under the sun, medical, financial, uh, gaming, entertainment, Um, we have to make sure that we protect our digital assets as well. So you need to do a a thorough check and see what are the different accounts that you have and what are the avenues for someone else to be able to access that because it may not be through your estate planning documents. But in all that you do, take a moment to set up a plan for yourself. That is the first step. Awesome, awesome advice. You have been incredible today. Thank you so much for joining me. And if you would like to reach out to Attorney Boyce Ron for more great advice, please visit her website at www.thespectrumlawfirm.com. Again, that's www.thespectrumlawfirm.com. Sandy, again, thanks for joining me today. Please be sure to tune in again in two weeks at 11 a.m. Central Time for our next show. And if you would like to catch today's show on replay, please visit all streaming platforms and look for The Celeste Stein Show. Now, as we depart for today, I want you to remember my father's favorite saying, it's never let your reach exceed your grasp or what's a heaven for. Thanks for watching.